Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. On this episode, we've got a real treat for you. We talk with Neil Maxwell. Born in Fiji, played for Fiji, but also a first-class career where he took in games for New South Wales, rubbing shoulders with the Taylor Slater War Clan, as well as playing a season in Canterbury. Then went on into a very successful career in cricket administration, both for New Zealand cricket as marketing manager, but then ended up as CEO of the Kings Punjab 11 in the IPL. Talks about all things cricket, including the impact of COVID on the game from a broadcast perspective. This is a cracking little hours chat with Neil, all coming up after the swish. So Neil, welcome to the Top Order podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. We always like to start off, I guess, by understanding people's cricketing journey. So what are your first memories of the game? How did you fall in love with it or hope you fell in love with it? I think um, watching my older brother play, um, uh, I had a, a unique background in many respects. So I grew up in Fiji. So by the time I uh, turned up in Australia, I was about seven, and that my brother was 13, uh, my oldest brother. So uh, he he took to the game quite quickly through school, and then um, I was just watching him and used to follow him around, the annoying younger brother, and eventually... Uh, by the time I turned 11, um, I discovered there was a cricket club nearby and I was able to join in and play. Uh, I remember getting a second ball duck, which was a, a quick initiation to the game. And uh, But the bowling side of things uh, I quite enjoyed because uh, you always got a second go. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was good fun. And then uh, the next year... Um, there was a local. We were able to set up a local cricket club through school. So um, yeah, the, the, my brother was playing at, at the local Normanhurst Cricket Club, and they didn't have a junior team. So um, my mates and I were able to start a, uh, a local team there. So loved the game from from ball one. Well, maybe ball three, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you progress up through the? I guess the age groups. Did you play representative stuff as you were growing up? Look, I, I did, um, but uh, I have to say, I, I was a late bloomer. I, I, I remember Greg Matthews describing himself and myself as um, ugly but effective, <laughs> and I think uh, that we, he called us working-class cricketers, and I think uh, that summed us up. There were a lot more talent uh, than me, for sure, and I, uh, I was in awe of them, even in first-class level. You know, you saw... a. A Mark War, Steve War, Michael Slater, Mark Taylor playing with you, um, but just knew you're in another league. So whether that's self belief or just sheer realism, um, I think I quickly learned that I was sort of a second tier uh, to those guys at that level, and you know just uh, hardworking. And uh, I think I got every bit of talent out of uh, my body. Put it that way. Was that something, that feeling of there being two tiers of, of players in that New South Wales squad in the mid-90s, was that something that was something that you just felt yourself or was there a almost a culture of there being the elite, elite guys and then the rest of the squad at that, at that level? Look, that's a really good question. Um, if you asked me that when I was playing for Victoria, I would have said there was a culture of two, two levels. But New South Wales, uh, the culture was amazing. It was completely different. It was a real team focus. It didn't matter whether you were captain of Australia or um, or Neil Maxwell, who just made the 11. 
um, you know, you were one. And uh, I think that was a real uh, element to the success of New South Wales. I mean, my proudest moment, even having played for Australia A, which was a wonderful thrill, and playing various other levels, but to make the New South Wales team full strength was uh, probably tougher. Um, we, we had nine Australian players, um, you know, plus a Michael Bevan or a Shane Lee, uh, and then there was, you know, a spot for someone else that could just squeeze in there. Mm. Um, so, yeah, but New South Wales was very much all all uh, focused on on the outcome, encouraging young blokes. That's why I think Michael Slater was able to develop so quickly. You know, he just he just blossomed into a, a test player because he was nurtured by, you know, the blokes around him. And I think that was a, a point of difference for New South Wales during that era and probably historically as well. Is that something that Sheffield Shield sides of the current era are, are still able to produce, that that kind of senior leadership, even though the guys don't play very much Shield cricket these days, those senior Australian guys? How do those Sheffield Shield squads foster that kind of leadership in their in their current setup? Um, look, that's the million-dollar question, and I think, um, I think the report that um, got handed down recently to Australian cricket when it did a review of itself by Longstaff um, just highlighted that we were losing that. We weren't giving the respect to Shield cricket. Um, and I think that was a key element of growing up. You had people driving you, taking you to the next level, showing you what it was like to play for Australia. Um, and you were playing with these people. Uh, I think Cricket Australia lost its way, you know, six years ago, seven years ago. Um, it was all about the future and not about the now. Mm. And I think... Um, we've been able to correct that in the last two years. I think uh, the players had a strong voice in that. You know, uh, I think the the Players Association, representing 1,500 players, past and current, came out quite strongly and said, just because it's new doesn't make it right. You know, there were key elements of the of the past that uh, needed to be held onto in order for the game to grow. And I think I think that's been uh, embraced and is. Uh, a part of uh, the future now. Um, so it's very much, uh, I think it's a bit of a back to the future in that regard. So um, keeping keeping Australian players and senior players in the game and not riding off because they've turned 24 and 25, which was actually happening in Australia, mm. which I, I bored with, um, we were able to correct that. I, I look at the success of the New Zealand team, the, the, the Black Cats. People are debuting at 29 mm. and 30. And I think that that is a testament to a strong system. We need people to score runs, take wickets, learn how to play the game and build a base to their game before you pick them. And that, to me, is what went horribly wrong. Is we were picking people who looked really good. They had a lovely cover drive. They looked talented. They didn't have a base to the game and how to resolve problems, you know, or learn to deal with circumstances in a game because they hadn't the experience to do that. So uh, that, that, that's something I, I hope we don't make those mistakes again. And, that we, um, you know, you don't have to be just completely fashionable. You can be um, a different cricketer. You can you can be ugly but effective, to be frank. Yeah. How real do you see, I guess, that resurgence of the Australian team being? Obviously, this documentary has been an absolute smash on 
um, Amazon Prime, the the test. But I guess as a as, as a marketer in cricket as well, how much of that is you know for the for the cameras, and how much do you think that really is a, an improvement and a a massive stride forward in terms of the culture of that side? Look, I think there's no doubt the culture has changed. Um, I think, uh, and it had to, because it was beyond the joke. Uh, I'm close friends with Stephen Fleming and others from, you know, my days in New Zealand. And, uh, you know, they were scathing of the Australian cricket team. And uh, and I can understand why. But I, I, I see the change. I see it's genuine. Uh, look, I think there was still a bit of that. Uh, look, it, it was softened around the edges, that doco, to be honest. It wasn't, I think it was... You know, there were tougher times than were probably made out. And, um, uh, and uh, you know, a few, there were a lot of learnings. I think Justin Langer learned a lot through that process as a coach because mm-hmm. um, he was probably one-dimensional when he started and he's evolved, you know, in, in the space of a few years. He's, he says himself he's matured. And I think the players have helped that and, and he's helped the players. In that so, and, and I think the administra- administration's had to as well it's a it was a young administration two years ago because a lot of people had been moved on so yeah i think uh, i think the australian cricket team is quite genuine going forward i, I think they made a mistake at some point or not the mistake they had to come to terms at some point with stop apologizing you know they were all so um scarred and they were still saying sorry a year after You've got to put that behind you at some point and just get on with it. And I think, I think they've shown um, uh, a maturity and a connection with the Australian public that uh, people want to be proud of. Yeah, well, look, um, I, I imagine we'll get on to some of that stuff um, a little bit later again. But just quickly before we leave sort of your cricket, and you you were touched on how people were getting opportunities. And, and I mean, definitely in the those 90s when I remember watching Australia, it was exactly like you said, those people had to play for, for years to get those opportunities, even at, at Australia A-level. But, I mean, you got that crack at Australia A-level and then it seems like you left kind of straight away and, and came to Canterbury. Were you thinking at that point, were you, you know, were you thinking you might play for Australia? To be honest with you, uh, that, that point in time prior to coming over was the closest I got to playing for Australia. Oh. Um, I... I, I I was in the World Cup squad in '96, and uh, and there were two spots to be um, uh, two people to be left out of uh, 16 to I think to a 14 or an 18 to a 16 or something, mm. and uh, I was one of those two. Um, as I said before, in that era, there was a class of player well above me. Um, if I made that World Cup squad, it would have been because of the conditions in India and and um, the way I bowled. But they thought to the future, and they picked some uh, some hack called Jason Gillespie, who'd never <laughs> played a game. And uh, all of a sudden, um, I mean, that showed a lot of force because Jace became one of the leading bowlers in world cricket. I mean, I must admit with you, I was horribly surprised at the time because mm. I'd been playing him, and he was like a fast medium and didn't offer much. But selectors saw it, and to their credit, they were right because that guy, you know, transformed in the space of a year, and. Uh, so, so I was never going to be an established Australian cricketer. I knew that. I, um, in those days, there were, you know, there was, there was 15 players making a living out of the game. So you had to have an alternate um, career path, and I was very much involved. I enjoyed that. I was confident in that space. And uh, when the opportunity came to go to New Zealand, I actually cut a deal with Chris Boyd 
He said, let me find out if I make it. Well, he suggested it, actually, because I actually was going to give the cricket a chance. And he said, let me find out. Let, if you make it, then stay. Play the World Cup and then come to New Zealand. Mm. And that would have been ideal. But as it turned out, I didn't make the cut. And, um, and I headed over to New Zealand, which was a wonderful experience in itself. Yeah, so you played a bit for Canterbury then and and you were working for New Zealand cricket at that time, is that right? Uh, yes, I was working and it was always going to be difficult. I mean, the last thing Steve War said to me before I got on the plane to go to New Zealand was, um, don't be shy in trying to qualify. If I hadn't have played that Australia A game, ironically, mm. one game, I could have qualified, I think, in 18 months or something because because I was born in Fiji and I hadn't played a representative game, I would have been fast-tracked if, mm. if I was good enough over there. Mm. Um, but I wasn't there to play cricket. I'd sort of put cricket behind me at that point and I was there to um, you know, develop as an administrator. So, But the beauty of what I'd done is I'd learnt a lot. I, I've had a unique experience in that I've learnt both sides of the fence. I'll never forget having a chat with my boss at New South Wales Cricket He's saying, look at those players carrying on when they take a wicket. You know, it was real old school. Uh, and I said, but hang on, mate. Do you realise that uh, – it wasn't mate, it was sir. Do you realise that the, the, the people that are in the ground at the moment are actually here to, to be entertained? And they love celebrations and the, and the players celebrating. You know, if you, if you cut that off, what do you expect the crowd's going to be like? So you sort of it could explain both sides of the, uh, of the ledger in that sense. Mm. Um, I remember explaining to a player what it cost to stage a cricket match. He had no idea. So you could sort of say, mate, don't complain about that because they spent, you know, the association spent $50,000 just putting this game on. Mm. And then so it was really quite a unique position to have played and then then, um, become an administrator. And I was one of the first to do that. Um, I was employed by New South Wales Cricket as an 18-year-old straight out of school because they felt that the administration was far too old and hadn't wasn't in connect with the game. And there were only six employees at New South Wales, well, well, um, over 240. Mm. So you can see um, I was right at the coalface when I first uh, moved into administration. Um, and, and it's a, a running sort of joke on the, on the podcast that I'm allowed one question about Rickerton every time uh, we get a, a Rickerton <laughs> guest on. Um, so yeah. I guess you'll have to tell us a, a little bit about uh, what it was like to wear the, the baggy green, and, and I guess uh, I understand you're <laughs> you're one of the you you reached the pinnacle of cricket by winning the the two day championship for Rickerton. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved I loved the experience. I, I met some wonderful people. Um, I'm still very close uh, with uh, Gary Stead. Um, a Rickerton boy, Jeff Allard, who wasn't quite an, a uh, Rickerton boy, but probably should have been playing with the old boys but uh, I uh, I love my time at Rickett and, and um, I, I was I, the problem is it's like I, my dad my the frustration I'll never forget my dad saying to me once he was a very good lawn bowler you know internationally and he said my frustration now is that my mind knows what I want to do but my body doesn't do it yeah. um, I didn't have that problem I I knew what I wanted to do, but the frustration was I was doing the wrong thing. I was bowling wrong lengths. I was, and I'm not being disrespectful to to uh, to um, uh, club cricket in in Christchurch, but I, I was so frustrated with myself because I was I was doing it. I was doing 
as I say, bowling wrong lengths and playing the wrong shot, all of that sort of stuff. And it wasn't until Steve Rickson turned up one day and he was watching a club game and he told me that, you know, you don't get wickets bowling um, from off stump taking it away to the slips. You bowl at the stumps. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's little things like that that just uh, took a long time to change. Um, you know, you're so uh, um, trained and, and, and practice different styles. Um, I learned a lot about cricket going through that process. How to how to play at different levels. How to um, how to get wickets. Um, and that that comes back to the point I was making earlier. Sorry, I've waffled on a bit there, but it, it makes it. You've got to learn. You've got to learn about your own game. You've got to circumstances, and that's why I think the hardened, mature cricketer who's who's got ten thousand runs under their belt is going to be far better than the the youngster that comes in. So it's a long-winded answer, and I apologise, but I, I love playing at Rickard, and there's was, there was a great group of guys, and uh, and we had a bit of success. Neil, you wouldn't be the first podcast guest that we've had to get misty-eyed when reminiscing about Rickard and Cricket, cricket Club, that's for sure. <laughs> um, but you you Good were you. you were selected to, to play for your uh, country of birth, Fiji, in a number of different tournaments. Can you tell us about what that experience was like playing those associate tournaments, you know, 97, 01, 05. What was that experience like for you? I've got to say that was the most enjoyable cricket that I've played. Um, I, uh, I went away with a gun- bunch of uh, uh, Fijians, who, many of which had never been outside the country, let alone on a plane or, you know, and, you, and you're turning up into places like Amsterdam and, uh, and Malaysia and, and Kenya and um, Canada. Um, Papua New Guinea, these were amazing places that I got to visit as a result of cricket, which many international cricketers wouldn't get close to. Mm. So um, I I loved the experience. It was just genuine fun and you were playing for the reasons that you asked earlier, you know, why, why do you, what brought you to cricket? And it was just that, the fun element of the game. And I, uh, I digress slightly again, but I got asked this question at 42, 43 when I finally finished playing. So what were the most enjoyable years? It was playing for Fiji. It was probably my most enjoyable time, followed by playing second grade at um, at, the, at the Sydney Tigers Cricket Club because you're playing when it didn't really matter how you performed. The pressure wasn't on you to perform. The joy was seeing other people perform and grow. Um, and that that really has to be the most enjoyable part of the of my 40 odd years of cricket is playing when you're playing for the fun of the game uh, and not worrying about scoring 100 or taking five wickets and and just sort of on that associate cricket having been there i mean what do you think are the most kind of important things to kind of grow that those nations and you know a nation like fiji to kind of get to a level where they can you know maybe compete at the 2020 level or, or some form of cricket Look, it's it's a difficult one. I mean, I, I think cricket's got so far above itself at the moment. I mean, I uh, look at Ireland qualifying to play a test match. They finally stage a test match and they lose five hundred thousand US dollars staging a game. You know, and that that's where uh, that should not be. You know, I understand the standards and everything that have to be met, but you can't price people out of playing the game. Now, to be honest with you, associate countries are only going to grow if they get end up with it, they're underpinned by a TV audience or huge amount of spectators, etc. Fiji and places like that are never going to be able to grow. They have to be funded with a view to play for the fun of the game. 
So, yeah, it's a, it's a dichotomy in that regard. Um, the game needs to grow, but the, the markets like Bangladesh and Nepal and Afghanistan, they'll grow before you see Gibraltar, Italy, yeah. you know, those sort of markets grow. Mm. Moving on, I guess, to your time as an agent, we, I guess, have a view of sports agents, probably from watching Jerry Maguire, I guess. So um, tell us how different <laughs> how, how different is it from that, um, particularly, I guess, the difference between cricketers and, um, and football players and the different codes as well? Um, look, I suppose it, it depends why you are an agent. I've got uh, uh, my personal experience of becoming an agent was to help uh, a friend initially. I mean, Shane Lee was the best man at the wedding, his and I played with him. So when his brother came on the scene, they needed some guidance. So uh, I was providing him marketing nows as opposed to uh, trying to drive a percentage of earnings. That ended up going for sixteen years. Uh, we actually, when it first started, we were trying to find agents that would be that sold a vision, you know, that had a had a uh, a unique selling point to someone like Brett. But everyone was actually in it to make twenty percent of their earnings. And you know, uh, we had a long a long um, partnership as a result of just offering a unique range of servicing. And it was about building a brand and and moving him into India and and profiling in there. So. Uh, there was a strategy, but selfishly, what Brett was able to do for me was open doors in, into boardrooms. So I was building my strength was building marketing and sponsorship strategies that actually incorporated Brett. So I wasn't pushing, you know, a twenty percent commission. I was more about building a retainer-based relationship with the with the brands and the corporates. So it helped me build a business, um, but it worked for Brett really well. With, so we were taking over a, a comprehensive marketing strategy around Brett Lee for brands. So we were able to build relationships with Gatorades, Travel Travel X, Sanitarium, which is one of the you know that was one of the longest in Australian history, mm. sports history. Um, so those sort of relationships really helped me build a business and profile Brett and position Brett the right way. But now it's now it's far more of a, a, a hobby for me. Um, I really enjoy uh, looking after um, Pat Cummins, uh, Josh Hazelwood, Mike Hussey, and I help Brad Haddon a bit on the side as well. A bit more about you know life after cricket for some of those guys, but uh, you know it, now now the pressure on the agents far different. The, in, when I first started, the players made their money from endorsements. Um, now and they made and they had a you know a decent playing. Comp- for which I must say I've never never taken a cent of a player's playing contract because I don't feel that's right in, in the world of cricket. Um, but uh, the 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 now the now the situation is more around they get very they get very well paid or they you know, they're paid what they're um, they're due and um, and then the endorsements take a, a much smaller component uh, of their their income. So. Um, it, not there to squeeze twenty percent out of a player. I think it's important that agents um, there's a balance because if you're making a living from twenty percent um, of endorsement, then your motivations can be compromised. And uh, I think uh, you know if you you then need to take on a lot of players as well, and therefore you know there can be conflict in that regard as well. If you're representing you know ten, fifteen athletes 
where where does the endorsement dollar go? You know, how do you how do you split it between this person and that person? Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting world. It's not one that I would like to make a living out of. I can assure you. I think for the player's benefit, you're better off um, having a core income somewhere else and um, and being able to make independent decisions based on the best interests of the player, um, uh, as opposed to I really need this money to pay my rent. You mentioned life after cricket there. When do you start working with players and looking at their strategies for what they might do after the game? How early are you encouraging for that and, and making those kind of links? That's the first meeting that we have. So the conversation that I'll have with a player is where do you want to be after you retire? because I think your whole plan is built around that strategy because you're playing for six, ten, six to ten years max. You know, unless Pat Cummins it could be freaky, you could get 12, 13 years, you know. So the point I'm making is you're going to spend a lot of time not playing cricket. What do you want to do post, post that? So um, how do we use the profile and the opportunities the, the, uh, to meet people and all of the bells and whistles that come with being a prominent, you know, Australian or international cricketer, how do we use that to help you get to the position you want to be at retirement? I think it's a really important part of being a player manager. Is there more scope now to go and act as an agent in, in the traditional agent sense to shop players around to different domestic franchise-based leagues now? And has that changed the way that national boards... Uh, perceive and have relationships with agents? Yeah, look, I think it's most definitely. I mean, I I want to preface this comment by saying I'm a traditionalist and I love test cricket. That I love it and I know the players love it. Um, but you've also got to weigh that up against the economics. Mm. And the world the world of cricket is changing rapidly. I, I think if you, if you haven't been involved as a, as a player in the last, you know, five years, if you've finished cricket in the last five years, you're one of the few people that can seriously coach 2020 cricket. I think it's really hard for old players to step in and become, you know, coaches at that level because it's a new product. The strategies are completely different. The point I'm making is that the game has evolved more in the last five years than it have in the previous 30. Mm. So to, to be at the cutting edge and be a contemporary thinker in that space is limited to a few. So the point I'm making is that the game is changing so quickly that I, I believe the administrators have to be ahead of the game. They've got to be thinking about where this is going. They've got to be looking at, uh, you know, I, I said, when I was working for New Zealand Cricket, I was asked, where will the game be in 20 years? And this was in 1996, um, as we were introducing uh, Cricket Max within the next, you know, mm six months, ironically, at that point, um, which was in a bridge, a different version of 2020 cricket, you may recall. But that, I was asked at that point, where's the game going to go? And I said, it's going to be owned by, um, you know, there's going to be private teams. And people laughed. But I thought, I thought, you know, cricket has to evolve because it can't. You, cricket and rugby were the only codes in all of the world that were making a, a sorry, that survived off international cricket or international sport. Every other sport had a league or a club-based competition which underpinned the international revenues that were derived. Cricket survived and largely still did 
five years ago off international cricket revenues. Mm-hmm. That's changing with the IPL. That's you know, if you're a purist, that's that is a danger. The IPL is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, longer and longer and longer, and the players are going to have to change and they're going to have to make decisions. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, and then in my view, players will then come together to play World Cup um, and maybe select test matches. But the game is evolving at such a pace, um, and I think I, I think more and more it will be privatised. I think sport in Australia, I actually, uh, uh, I'm having a Jerry Maguire moment at the moment, to use your expression. <laughs> uh, I think there's so much sport at the moment. I think the values of the of the you know, game from administration and players' perspective have been warped. Um, I, I think we're, be, we're all becoming bottom feeders. We've got over 120 professional franchises in the country, the size of Australia, or sorry, the population of Australia, 25 million people. How do you feed all of those mouths? Mm. It, it won't survive. And I think COVID has fast-tracked that. So I'm really concerned about, I think sport needs a complete overhaul. I think professional sport needs a complete overhaul. There'll be some codes that can survive and there'll be others that can't. The broadcasters won't pay. People won't be committed to it uh, the way they were. So uh, I, I do believe that the players are the key in whatever sport, whether it's cricket or tiddlywinks, the players will be the key. And um, and that needs to be protected and refined over time um, because I I think it's cheaper for, for media organisations to own and run competitions than it is to buy broadcast rights. So something to consider. So we don't want to make this all about COVID-19, but you mentioned it there. What are the challenges now that you really feel are going are gonna to hit cricket? We've obviously got a lot of logistical issues, but those are things that boards are going to solve in order to you know, look at sort of short-term-ism to an extent. But what opportunities and, and challenges is this going to create, do you think, both for the international game and also for franchise cricket? I think franchise cricket is a lot more flexible. It's nimble. It it to adapt. So uh, I, I think I think franchise can test the establishment more and more. I'm not saying that's great because I, as I say, I'm a purist. I'm a traditionalist. Mm-hmm. But I think that's going to happen. I think uh, international cricket needs to shed its reliance on one one territory, um, and it's going to have to. Um, Compromise the amount of international cricket plays is played so that uh, the domestic games in in certain markets can be that base. I think international cricket needs to become a windfall, and the revenues that underpin the game have to be built from your domestic market. It's going to make it really hard for countries like New Zealand and some of the smaller countries. If someone's to ask me now where's the game going to be in 20 years, I would say it's only going to be an extension of what I said 30 years ago. You know, um, it's going to be franchise-based. It's going to be far more global. Um, I don't know how you can survive it. Cricket has 200. Okay, let's say 10 years ago, cricket had 150 international cricketers. The whole game, all its revenues, everything revolved around 150 people. Mm. Yeah? Now with uh, 2020 cricket, franchise cricket, all of that sort of growing, it may have 220 players yeah mm. what sport can survive just off that 
Mm. I mean, on one hand, that's a real luxury. On the other hand, it's ridiculous. If you're looking at football, you're going to have you know a million professional footballers around the world. Mm. You know, the sport is going deeper, it's going wider, whereas cricket still has this, you know, 200 at the top. You know, 200 people at the top. That doesn't provide you a lot of security. I mean, is there any way to spread that base? Yeah, and that's going to be through domestic competition. Mm. Yeah, it's going to have to be the growth of the domestic competition. It's going to, it's going to have to be club-based competition. And I don't know. I, I, I think you know the mind hasn't gone there completely, but I, I think there's definitely things that need to be built around regional competitions. You know. Um, Australia up into into Asia with New Zealand, um, you know, South Africa up into England uh, from a time zone perspective, you know, uh, India can survive in its own at the moment. Mm. Um, but there's going to have to be some sort of, uh, you know, um, world view of the game, I think, uh, instead of a world view, a, a world view with parochial interest. Do you think that's why the ICC has placed so much emphasis on World Cup tournaments in their in their schedule that they released late was it late last year or, mm. or early this year? It seemed like there was a, a World Cup almost every year, and then there was the World Chess Championship. Do you think that might be the ICC seeing the writing on the wall there for some of those bilateral series and saying we want to put the emphasis on international big tournaments now and let domestic cricket start to fill out the rest of that calendar? Yeah, look, I, I think so. I think there's different agendas um, there. Um, but yes, broadly speaking, um, I think uh, there, there has to be some, you know, more of a structure um, around the world game. Um, but it's going to be very hard to stop an Ashes series so that, uh, you know, Australia can play uh, Afghanistan. Mm. Um, yeah, so the money talks. But I believe there is a transition occurring. And and we'll, we want to move on a little bit to, to the IPL stuff because I know you were involved sort of in the, the early days there. But before we leave agenting completely, can you, you tell us any sort of absolutely crazy boardroom stories or, I mean, obviously anything you're, you're allowed <laughs> to actually share? And, and the other yeah, one I had yeah. is um, what was it like to work with the, the Bollywood uh, crew with, with Brett Lee? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, IPL, uh, fascinating. I mean, um, it can move mountains. I think it's uh, it's very much part of the future. It was an incredible uh, event to be a part of, uh, both initially from securing players through to uh, running one of the franchises. I ran King, Kings 11 Punjab last year in 2008. Um, it, it was new to everyone, obviously. But the the ability uh, at the time to just push on uh, the BCCI, Lalit Modi and his team, IMG, um, they it was probably the reason it worked is it had to be done in a short period of time. And mm. agendas and other things couldn't get in the way because the BCCI was defending itself against, uh, was it ICL? I think the yeah, National yeah. Cricket League or the Indian Cricket League, I think at the time. Yeah. Um, so it had to move. Uh, nothing stood in its way. Uh, it was. It had the right person at the helm at the time, uh, Lalit, who just bulldozed and talked it up so far and brought in new dollar amounts and you know really spruced uh, 
this incredible competition. Um, but then all of a sudden you had these owners that had come in who really had no idea about cricket. It was it was about the stature and the economics and the potential. Um, and they had the foresight to back it, the teams. But um, some funny stories. I mean, I remember going in to try and cut a deal with Adidas or Reebok at the time. We would negotiate a deal and Bollywood actress uh, Pretty Zinta, who I've got to say was one of the more, you know, intelligent and she learned so quickly about the game of cricket um, and then how it operated. But at the time, there was just a naivety. Mm. And she just said, uh, no, we're not going with those uh, uniform companies. I've got got on taking care of the players' costumes. (laughs) And uh, I knew we were in trouble when that word came out. Um, (laughs) But I said, pretty, we can just sign up with a sports team, a sports apparel provider, and we'll get it done and dusted. The competition starts in two weeks, so we need to have uniforms. Anyway, uh, no, 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 Neil, I've sent someone to Taiwan and we're building, we've got the material coming and I've got a prototype arriving in seven days. And I said, seven days? Well, that puts us seven days out from the start of the comp. No, 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 I've got it covered. Anyway, I'll never forget the day the prototype arrived. We were literally six days out from the competition. She's pulled it out of a a shopping bag in front of, I think it was uh, uh, Lee, uh, Hope, and uh, Yuvraj Singh and uh, and uh, Sangakara were just walking. Or we were in a little huddle walking back from. They were walking back from training. She was so proud of this shirt. She pulled it out. I'm not joking. If you remember Michael Jackson's Thriller, the uh, that red red leather jacket that he wore, it was had shoulder pads. It had shoulder pads about a weight. It had zippers on it. It had the material, the boys were playing in 47 degree heat and it was thicker than a suit, you know, and, and they had reflect, it had reflecto stripes, like, you know, the roadies, the trailer on the roads and oh, the boys just burst out laughing and she was so insulted and I remember Brett saying, no, 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 pretty, look, it's fine, it's fine, we've just got to work out one thing and she said, what's that, Brett? So I've got to work out how I can get my arm over to bowl a ball. Shoulder pads for that thick. Anyway, she threw it on the ground and stormed off, and we had, you know, four or five days to get the uniform sorted. We uh, uh, we had a sponsor lined up, which one of the owners refused to accept, said he could do better. And uh, anyway, at two a.m. on the night of the, the, we were playing the second ever game of IPL. At two a.m. that night, they signed a deal with the sponsor for about a quarter of what we'd been offered wow. initially. Mm. Um, so they spent the rest of the day getting the uniforms printed and, and and I hadn't seen clothes. I hadn't seen the uniforms at this stage. And I'm not exaggerating. Um, Yuvraj Singh went out to toss in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. So there was not a uniform in the ground during the toss. Wow. Um, of course, we lose the toss and we're fielding. This is a four o'clock game at uh, Mahali Stadium. We're playing phlegm, actually, because we were all laughing about it. We're playing Chennai Super Kings. And I'll never forget, Huss got 120 and won the game for him. We didn't – seriously, I was screaming down the line. A, a truck came flying through the front gates. The players are in the change rooms with nothing to wear. <laughs> and they were about to walk out on the field. I ran in, grabbed – I just grabbed some spectators and said, help me with these. They ran the boxes into the change room. They were just starstruck in the middle of the change room. <laughs> and we're throwing clothes around. And, of course, the shirts are put on. And the shirts go down to the back of the knees of the players because they, 
they'd used lettering for Sangara, which was the sort of lettering that you would use, you know, half size lettering instead of using the, the, <laughs> the two two inch version letters. And these things went down. So the the back of the shirt sponsor was literally behind the knees of the players. And I had to beg them to wear their shirts out because if they, you know, tuck them in, you don't need their number. Uh, so that that was the stupidity of it all. Um, but we got through it. Mm. We got through it, and that's where it is today. But, yeah, all a bit of fun. From humble beginnings. So so you were the, the CEO of the Kings Eleven Punjab in that inaugural year in 2008. How did that come about for you? It came about on uh, – Lalit Modi had asked me to convince the Australian players and the New Zealand players that they needed to come to the IPL and not go to the ICL or not, in Andrew Simon's case, not go at all. He didn't want to go because he'd had a blow-up with Harbishan and, you know. That's right. Mm. So I had to work the Australian cricket team, and I was working them all. I remember we were putting contracts in front of them that was going to be the minimum amount. They are going to this thing called an auction, and they didn't want to, but they were going to get a minimum amount. So it was something like Andrew Simons was going to get $200,000 as a minimum. Mm. And he was earning, you know, that was about an Australian cricket contract. He might have been on 300, let's say. But he was going to get that for six weeks, playing guaranteed, and it could only go up. And so I remember sitting where I am right now near my pool, con- trying to convince him that he needed to be a part of that, uh, that uh, this competition. Anyway, he reluctantly agreed, and this 48 hours later, he had 1.2 million a year for Jeez. three years on a, as a contract, yeah. you, you know, US dollars. Mm-hmm. So th- you talk about transformation. That was the that was the transformation that took place in that you know that couple of weeks as they introduced the auctions. So yeah, I, I was convincing the players that they needed to do it, and of course after that, everyone thought it was best thing since sliced bread. Mm. And so sorry, as a result of that, I was recommended as one of the CEOs. Oh wow! And, uh, and uh, every year, um, I couldn't have done any more. It was just too chaotic and. But I learned a lot. It was it was a great experience, even though I've probably lost three or four years of my life. <laughs> um, it was uh, it was a great learning experience, and culturally and otherwise, to be a part of that. And, and was it a case of there being a lot of outside influences affecting how you could, you know, effectively you had to stand up and run both a business and a cricket team in a short space of time? Were you did you feel like you had control of that situation, or was there? influence of, of, of Lalit Modi and ownership and the BCCI. No, no control whatsoever. <laughs> you just, you, it was re- completely reactionary. And you got to remember, we had the Slapgate affair as well. Oh, yeah. um, Harbhajan decided to slap, what's his name, the bowler. Oh, slap Fast bowler. Yeah. Shreesan. Mm. So, mate, I found myself going to judiciary hearings in different parts of the country. And, the, and mate, in India, you had no idea about the wheels within wheels. Mm. I remember flying there with um, – sorry, what did you say his name was? I've got a mental blank. Uh, Sri um, Yeah. Yeah, I was flying to the hearing with him, and he's just saying my career's over. You know, I, you had no idea about people – he said, but I said, you're the one that got slapped, mate. <laughs> he said, yeah, but I'm told I'm not – you know, I shouldn't appeal this. And he's getting calls from – all parts of cricket, you know, I'm talking all parts of cricket. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you know, he was uh, he was a lamb to the slaughter. But uh, thank goodness the hearing didn't go ahead, really, because they found footage of it happening, so they couldn't actually deny it. So, 
But it was funny, even in that hearing, the waiters had been paid. By the, there were news, news people everywhere. I'm talking, I'm not talking, you know, 15, 20. I'm, I'm talking two, 300 news um, reporters. And they were just, and of course, there's no forum in which to stage that. And you, so you just, I remember Marla Modi was standing up on the bar in a restaurant trying to tell 300 reporters the outcome of the meeting. <laughs> but what had happened was the waiters had been paid beforehand, the people delivering the water. To the judiciary committee, so we're sitting in a room waiting for the, and all these things were being leaked and are coming across the, you know, the ticket ticker on the uh, on the news, wow. and it was happening in the room next door as we spoke. Jeez. So all, you know, they're, they're the sort of things that were just a real a real um, learning experiences. Talking about the IPL, obviously in the light of COVID, there's going to be sport played without crowds. It's you know already going on in the NRL and. Bundesliga. Can the IPL work without people in the ground? Yeah, look, it can. I mean, I won't say it could work forever, um, but mm. uh, it definitely work. Uh, as a broadcast product, it's a sensational product. And there's so many things that, you know, that there'll be solutions for that sooner rather than later, I would suggest, with virtual overlays and even LEDs and other things. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic broadcast product. Um, and let's be honest, that's that's where why it's paid a billion dollars. It's not so much from the ticket sale. Although I'll probably have to restructure it slightly, but the franchise owners will be making so much more out of the shared um, broadcast rights that it won't make a huge difference from a revenue perspective. And and so I read that you were involved at some stage in trying to kind of set up a similar thing into Australia. In Australia, is is that what turned into the Big Bash, or or were you trying to do something else and then? Yeah, that, that sort of evolved later. No, there were two things there. I, I was a firm believer in 2020 cricket. I mean, I, having seen it firsthand, it played at that level. Um, in Australia at the time, it was still just a bit of a joke, a novelty. Um, there was a bit of a heritage, you know, uh, match 2020 going back to the old colours and stuff like that between Australia and New Zealand. We had a football, a rugby Andrew Johns play a game for New South Wales. It was mm. quite. It was seen as a complete entertainment product, mm. um, but but believed that they you know that this could become the essence of a club-based competition or the product for a club-based competition. Um, that uh, uh, so so there were two things there. One is that uh, just reported back to Cricket Australia about the opportunity with 2020 cricket and, mm. and where it could go there. I think they were a little bit. Um, uh, non non fussed about it at the time, um, but then um, the thing that probably sparked it was when I had uh, over two hundred million dollars worth of investment um, secured from my friends in India, who were really keen to buy stakes in the BBL, mm. and I thought that was for, that was representing forty nine percent stakes in um, some of the franchises here or some yes. of the clubs here. Mm. Um, and I think that that uh, probably not scared Cricket Australia, but uh, it prompted them to realise that uh, if they didn't do something, um, you know, that that the licences, that the states might, because um, mm. the states had actually signed that they were keen to do this, they need to divest forty nine percent, you know, for what million at the time for forty nine percent, and the most expensive franchise in Australia was the Brinkham, uh, sorry, the Brisbane Broncos. Was valued at 32 million at the time, mm-hmm. so they would make 26 million to 49 percent, 
and it didn't even have a broadcast deal at that time. Wow. So, you know, it was too... I'm not suggesting that Cricket Australia's done the wrong by not selling. Um, uh, they probably they made a, a conservative decision, which is fine. Um, but as I said earlier, I do believe that over time, sport in Australia will become more of a uh, privatised model. And and do you think the the current big bash? I mean, you know, you said you're involved in um, with New South Wales still. I mean, is it is it working out for the states? Yeah, I, I think it can work. I think it can work out better. Um, the uh, it's had an early peak um, two three years ago. The BBL was just you know flying, literally flying. I think uh, there's been some decisions made. Uh, I'm not saying they're the wrong ones, but they've been ones that are probably more in the interest of the game and spreading the game and growing the game, um, which have uh, have caused uh, you know the numbers to drop or the average crowd to drop because there's a lot more games. Um, I think yeah, it's gone from 38 to 54. Plus, you know, it keeps growing, and they've been taken to regional areas where some crowds are a thousand, but but you're playing it in um, Alice Springs. Yeah, so it's probably, I, I think the BBL has a series of conflicting objectives at the moment and it needs to probably just rationalise that and come back to its core reason for being, which I think can, sure, it should be a family-based product, but it needs to direct all energies towards that. Um, I do think there's going to be a, a tipping point where the Australian players are going to have to play in the competition um, for it to be truly an international um, you know, league. I just got. I just want to. We were going to move on, but I've just got one more question on the on the big bash with the restrictions in international travel. Now, do you think it's possible that the format of the big bash changes in the next couple of years to include maybe a New Zealand team, maybe a Singapore team, like teams within that kind of Asia region to try and get more or a more broadcast dollars in through Asian markets, but also to expand that that league without having to schedule necessarily more games against the same opposition? Um, the answer to that is yes. And I, thought, I said earlier, I think that's mm. where it needs to head over time. Um, it needs to be regional. I mean, it's probably the stronger T20 league in this area, and no disrespect to New Zealand competition, but by combining aspects of that, you've got to find the balance between growing your own players and player base but also the economics that come with that. So um, uh, whilst the domestic competition, sure, maybe you know six to six to seven local players across more franchises, but uh, opening it up for more international players to participate and uh, and growing its footprint, I think I think that has to happen over time, and there needs to be a ten-year plan behind this. Again, it comes back to the objectives, obviously. Um, there's going to be two objectives, I think. One is to grow the game in this country, which is, you know, a primary one. Um, but that can be done through revenue as well. Um, and and obviously, to soften the impact or the trans, uh, the change in value of international cricket rights so that your domestic competition becomes your mainstay and uh, your international becomes the bonus. Um, so I think that's, that's got to be part of a you know a longer term plan for for 
or cricket playing. Yeah, we, we tend to agree here as well. Uh, we've talked about the format of, of future cricket domestic tournaments quite a few times, and, and it, it often loops back to that Super Rugby or, or Heineken Cup model where you've got multiple nations having their top teams competing and so forth. So that, we, we really like that. Hey, um, you're involved with a company called uh, Techfront at the moment. Is, is that right? Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, look, uh, I've fallen into Techfront. Um, I was challenged uh, after the 2015 World Cup with uh, building a business case to uh, justify them keeping a lot of LED infrastructure in Australia. They brought it in for the ICC World Cup. Um, and we managed to uh, convince Cricket Australia that, that was the way of the future. We, we worked with the AFL, um, and uh, and we've 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 grown that. Um, needs to be another phase of that evolution, I think, because I think we transformed what was a a, a one-dimensional perimeter advertising program into a multi, you know, a digital one. Um, so, but I think that's got to go to another level, but. Techfront uh, is going through an interesting phase. It's been really tough mm. during the uh, COVID period, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's transitioning. It, it's uh, there's a lot of uh, evolution going on in the last uh, two months. So you'll probably see a different Techfront in the in in the next month. So looking forward to that. And we always like to finish the podcast, I guess, with a little bit of a quick um, wrap up of um, your cricketing highlights. So a quick fire round. So we'll kind of dig into, I guess, the playing the playing days, <laughs> and feel free to segue into either the agenting components or CEO of Kings Eleven Punjab, if that gives a better mm. a, a better story. Particularly when we talk about sledges. But do you, you w- w- when you look back, do you have a favourite <laughs> a favourite spell that you bowled? Gosh, what a really good question! I've never thought about it. Um, there's been times that there's, I don't know. I had a, I had a Really good spell down at Bell Reeve once. Uh, I took six for a few, against Tassie, um, and it was just yeah, just Nick's going to hand and all that sort of stuff. Um, there was a three for once. But I forget where I hadn't been bowled, and I was getting frustrated because it was the, in the second innings against South Australia. I hadn't bowled, and um, and uh, Steve Wall came up to me. There were four wickets to get in fifteen overs or something. And he just said to me, I've held you back because now you're going to win this game for us. And I just, <laughs> gosh, my chest just went out. I, I you know, I, I felt like a million bucks. Yeah, I might have been bowling at about 110 k's an hour, but I felt like I was bowling 150. So uh, um, anyway, that, that was, we ended up winning the game. And I, that was that was just a great moment. Um, so yeah, I've never really thought about that, but the, I... There's no better feeling than being able to run in and think that you're bowling fast and the ball's swinging and, yeah. But then again, you try and forget the ones where you're getting smoked through the covers every third ball and, uh, yeah. But, uh, no, I've never really thought about it, but I do. I did love bowling and, uh, you know, especially late in the day when it was really tough. Uh, that's where I felt that, uh, you know, the mind over matter, you know, uh, came to the fore. I really enjoyed those mental challenges. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't give you credit for your five percent, five for ten against Singapore in the two thousand one ICC Trophy, which our reach, <laughs> our research tells us is the best uh, figures by a Fijian in that competition. So uh, you, you've got to take credit for that. <laughs> well, there you go. I, uh, I think, 
uh, it's funny those things because some days uh, I'll never forget. I had really good figures in a in a one day domestic one day game. Uh, they were fantastic. I think they were like four for eleven or something. But when you when you go through, I'm the only one to remember this. But three of them were caught down leg side, and one was caught at fine leg. So, uh, no, <laughs> you know, they'll take them. But uh, yeah, some days you'll get a one for or a none for, and you'll bowl a hell of a lot better. Well, no, no room in the scorebook for the store, the story. So that's all good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank um, goodness. You grew up with some fantastic players that you mentioned earlier on, particularly some of those New South Wales teammates. Who was the favourite person that you shared a dressing room with? Oh, mate, the, the, you ask about highlights. I suppose that's that's really my highlight. I we won a Sheffield Day competition in '93, '94, and um, we had nine players out of the team. So I think we beat Western Australia in a game where they had 170 Test caps with Marsh and Valletta and and Zura and all those and and Bruce Reed, uh, even Alderman, I think, and and um, and we had none. You know, because uh, Greg Matthews was out injured, and uh, so we had no test caps. Um, admittedly, Michael Bevan was scoring a thousand runs and about to get a test cap, but that helped. Um, but uh, th- those moments where we were just these kids that uh, just having an absolute ball, because and, and we get a phone call from the West Indies, and it's all the legends on the phone wishing us well for the final. You know, so that making that New South Wales team, I'll just quickly go through it, but it was a Slater Taylor, a Steve War, Mark War, Michael Bevan, um, and I'll forget someone here, but then you had a Greg Matthews at six, a, a Shane Lee, and then a Steve, uh, Phil Emery, the wicketkeeper. Then you had, you know, Wayne Holdsworth, um, you had a, a Glenn McGrath, and then you had another spinner, you know, mm. or your. Or your or someone gets thrown in. Um, uh, and that left, you know, your Gavin Robinsons and others on the sideline. It was just the... Uh, Brad McNamara's... And it, it was an amazing era. Um, so just to be able to be in a change room with those guys, you never felt like you were going to lose a game. And some called it arrogance, but there was sort of a, a confidence there uh, when you're playing with that sort of calibre of player. Um, so, yeah, that was, a, that, that was probably one of the key highlights as a kid all I ever wanted to do was earn a, a baggy blue cap to be honest. Um, deep down you know that when you're playing with those people you're at a different level um, and I, I remember saying you know you've got players like Greg Blewett and Stuart Law and uh, Love and um, I don't know those sort of um, players that have got one test match or no test matches in that era who would have walked into other teams so um, it was a it was a it was an amazing era for Australian cricket. I remember saying to, uh, to Stephen Fleming actually, um, we, were, we were looking at the grades uh, the Shield scores one day, and we're saying everyone was scoring double hundreds, and there was even a triple hundred, and because getting a hundred wasn't enough, it just wasn't enough to be considered for selection. You had to score double hundreds, and that's what Martin Love and Huffy and those blokes were doing, trying to get games. It was uh, it was an amazing time. And on the podcast, we're trying to write a book of uh, cricket sledges that haven't been heard before. So, have you got one that we won't have read in the you know these various books you get in your Christmas stocking? Hundred and one great sledges, mate. 
you're asking the wrong bloke. I was a shocker. I, I had no idea about a surge. I would just grunt and huff and puff and bluff. I had no smart about me. Um, it was all a show. Um, but I'm trying to think. There were some crackers, but uh, they're all they've all been heard. You know. Um, Mark, the, uh, the war twins feature very heavily, and in, in whenever we ask this question to anyone that's had any involvement with them. The wars, yeah, they were very, not, not so subtle. I mean, not when you're out there. They're very direct. Um, well, let me, just let me tell you what, one quick one I remember. Watson, oh, you've excellent. probably heard this go. one. Yeah, but oh, this is third, uh, third hand. Um, but uh, Alan Border was playing a club game, and uh, he he was grumpy and cranky, and some kid was uh, trying to bounce him, and he kept, he was hitting him, and, and uh, and the kid went past the bat and he went, oh, and Border lost it. What are you going on about? How many effing test matches have you played? And this kid just stared back to him and said, how many effing grade games have you played? And <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know whether, I don't know who won that one, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah. And look, you've been so generous with your time and talked through so many components of your career. When you look back so far, what's been the proudest moment related to cricket? Uh, look, I, I love the fact that I've met so many people, to be honest. Um, I, I don't take a lot out of it. From a, a pride perspective, no. Nah, I, I I, the, the game gave me, has given me so much. You know, I, I love the memories. I love the, uh, I love the friendships. And um, whilst I might have huffed and puffed and tried to bluff my way through some games, trying to you know pretend to try and bowl fast, at the end of the day, um, I love the fact that there's so many people that I know from the game of cricket. And um, yeah, that that's the highlight, and that's why I encourage my my kids to play. My son and daughter love the game, and they play it uh, you know with a passion that I love. So yeah, game owes me nothing. I can assure you. Awesome. Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting through so many varied things from a playing career. Um, and we didn't even mention the MCC grand stuff. I'm sure there were some stories um, from your year there as well, particularly if you were still standing at hostel at that point. That uh, seems to be something yeah. that everyone talks about. But look, I, met thank Roger, you. I met Roger Tooth there, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he, he was the Kiwi on the, on the staff that year, was he? No, he wasn't the Kiwi. He was a he was Tom. The, oh, it was a uh, Tom, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom, the Kiwi. Oh, I can't remember the Kiwi, to be honest. That's a shame. That's a bit odd. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it was good fun. Good on you. All right. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Take it easy. <laughs>